Before saying anything at all, uh, I think we should just all rise because the subject is going to be extremely important and invoke the Holy Spirit. I was hoping there might be a priest here to help us, but there isn't. So we just say, come our Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. God who has taught the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his holy consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. I thought I might be talking to an alien audience, but I think um, Christian order and one or two other things must be pretty well circulated in this country. And the quote I was going to make, or will make, Um, I thought might not have been generally known. People may not have been aware of it. I now know that most of you will have. It is, of course, taken from the present Holy Father's statement on the Holy Mass, the Lord's Supper. And he said, I would like to ask forgiveness in my name and in the name of you venerable and dear brothers of the Episcopate, for everything which for whatever reason, through whatever human weakness, impatience or negligence, and also through at times partial and one-sided and erroneous application of the directives of the Second Vatican Council may have caused scandal and disturbance concerning the uh, the interpretation and veneration due to this great sacrament. And I think when a Pope has to say that, uh, we're not a pity. We're not in the euphoric state that everyone keeps convincing us of. Now, since the Mass is the central prayer of our faith, since prayer is the raising up of the mind and heart to God, and since the law of prayer is the law of belief, I think it's reasonable for us to ask that if there can be abuses in the Holy Mass. Why can't they be abuses in the propagation of our faith from top to bottom? And we're not afraid to say this anymore because we have the uh, prefect for the sacred congregation of the faith telling us, or uh, reported in Paris, his big speech in Paris in Lyon, telling us that the removal of the Trent Catechism was a grave error. Well, there's a lot of people being saying that, simple parents, but unhappily they didn't have the strength probably to overcome the, with it, super uh, teachers that this 20th century has given us. But when you've got the confession that catechesis is in the shambles, then where Do we get our beliefs from? We go back, of course, to the Gospels in particular, but to the Bible in general, and we reach the field of exegesis, which apparently is in no happier state. Again, Cardinal Ratzinger. He's talking about the pervading, the all-pervading, historico-critical analysis, of which I'm sure... Father will be addressing himself, uh, Dr. Mara will be addressing himself too. And he says of it, 
this methodology. The real Bible disappears for the sake of the benefit of a reconstructed Bible and for the benefit of a Bible such as would have to be in their view. It is the same with Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels considered as Christ considerably is considered as Christ considerably recast by dogma behind which it would be important to return to the Jesus of the Logia or yet another alleged source uh, in order to discover the real Jesus. The real Jesus says and does nothing more than what it pleases us. The resurrection becomes the experience of the disciples according to which Jesus, at least his reality continues. We no longer need to dwell on the events, but rather on the consciousness which the disciples and the community had about them. The certitude of faith is replaced by confidence in the historical critical analysis. Now, this procedure seems to me to be especially irritating. We are being locked up in a glass house of an intellectual world which turns on its own axis. It's this aspect of our faith that Dr. Murrah will be addressing us too. Well, I think we all know what our faith is. The Holy Father, in the same document that I had quoted from earlier, where he said that there had been grave abuses in the Mass, also said that on all occasions, the great universal language should be used. I would like to say to Dr. Murrow that he has uh, attracted many people from a great distance. The first gentleman I met was from Doncaster. I see several people from Leicester and the surrounds, and I think it's a tribute to the faith that they're here. Thank you. Dr. Murrow. Thank you, Frank, and dear friends in Christ. It's almost as if I had died to hear the credo sung in Latin on the banks of the River Trent. I think that's a highly significant coincidence. My topic is on a very important point, namely biblical exegesis, and I think we all agree there are two different trends in the Roman Catholic Church today. On the one hand, the emphasis on the Word of God. It was alleged that prior to Vatican II, uh, we had all sorts of novenas, devotions, statues, rosaries, but we had neglected the Word of God. So there is a tremendous new emphasis, at least in theory, on the Bible. And we have all sorts of biblical study groups and the people uh, allege that now for the first time we are really uh, understanding the Word of God. They acted as if the Catholic Church had chained up the Bible and had made it a sin not to read the Bible if they would only look into an old edition of the Bible, they would know you get uh, an indulgence. If you read the Bible every day for 15 minutes, the Catholic Church gives one an indulgence, a plenary indulgence, so that already shows how illiterate they are. But let us at least agree, to the extent that there is an interest in Scripture, this could be beneficial. We cannot get too much of the Word of God. Uh, in the New Ordo, it seems as if there's a tremendous emphasis on words, not just the word of God, but the word of the minister, the word of the lector, the word of everyone else. 
And it's almost as if our church has become the talking church, as Father Crane said, sometimes with the word of God, which could be good, provided it's the authentic word of God, but sometimes just with talk, so that one is distracted by, by the talk. One has hardly any time or uh, freedom to pray. This, that's on the one hand. So we have this emphasis on scripture, which is supposed to be one of the great fruits of the council. On the other hand, hand in hand with the emphasis on scripture, we have the fast-spreading rumor, and it's even more than a rumor, that many passages in the Bible are not historical. Just when we're starting to read the Bible, we're told in catechetics class, in Christian doctrine class, sermons, books, uh, 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 in workshops and so on, that there are certain passages in the Bible which, which need a, an interpretation. And what ends up is that they become demythologized. Now, of course, this is true of the Old Testament. One is quite embarrassed by uh, uh, the, the Genesis myth. A snake talking to one man and one woman, and these men and women are perfectly formed, and this is quite embarrassing to those who know better that Darwinian evolution has proved that we all started by swinging from the trees. And therefore, Genesis already is a source of embarrassment. And then Noah's Ark, what an extraordinary legend. It's fit for Homer or Virgil, but that a few humans stayed in a boat and, and floated on top of a mountain when the entire earth was covered. This seems incredible. Uh, and so on. There was a, an American musical done by Cole Porter years ago. And one of the lines was, the things that you libel to read in the Bible, they ain't necessarily so. It's a Negro spiritual of sorts. And that is, I mean, at least it's cute or charming when it comes from people who, who, who apparently are not educated, but this is exactly what we're hearing by the most prestigious biblical theorists in the Roman Catholic Church and, of course, the Protestant churches. The things you're liable to read in the Bible, Noah, Adam and Eve, uh, Genesis story, and so on, are, ain't necessarily so. Now, it's bad enough they destroy the Old Testament. And this is the way the German rationalists began by casting doubt on the, the literal meaning of many passages in the Old Testament. But they also start out later on on the New Testament, and this is still more ominous. At first, they're cautious. They're scholarly. They're tentative. They don't want to destroy your faith. But more and more in the popular press and in our catechetical institutions, one hears that uh, we cannot take literally, never mind Jonah in the whale, never mind Noah in the ark, never mind Adam and Eve, we cannot take literally the infancy narratives that there was a village in Bethlehem where a woman gave birth to a child and the child was the God-man and aimed and a star appeared over the stable and wise men traveled across the desert to see that child. In other words, this wondrous story of Christmas, charming, and these biblical scholars are willing to allow the peasants to enjoy the Christmas narrative, but from their higher viewpoint, they're quite disturbed that we should take this as literally so. 
So they cast doubt on the infancy narrative. That's a favorite code word, which means they don't believe in the, the birth, the nativity at Bethlehem, as recorded in Luke. Also, they cast out on the virgin birth. They don't simply say Mary was a liar, because she said to the uh, angel, I know not man. They don't simply say St. Joseph was, was duped, because apparently he certainly was not the father of Jesus, if you could take the, the, the history, if you could take the Bible literally, since he was willing to put her away because he knew he was not the father. But they, they conveniently overlook all that, and their whole point is that, well, the Virgin Mary is still the Virgin Mary, but she's not a mere physical virgin, and this is so uh, low level in any case. What, what matters, physical integrity? Uh, she's a spiritual virgin, whatever that means. So that the virgin birth continues to exist, but Mary really conceived her child by sexual intercourse with a man, and she probably had four or five other children, don't you know? I mean, why, uh, why does she stop with one? This is the, the deep conclusions of our experts, of certain of our experts. And above all, the resurrection. St. Paul said, if Christ be not risen, then our faith is in vain and our hope also is in vain. But our new biblical theorists, first in the Protestant, now in the Catholic churches, well, they don't exactly deny the resurrection, but they think again that why, why expect a literal resurrection? Why insist that there was a corpse having been cruelly put to death and this corpse revivified and then walked through? That's quite crude. No, the corpse remained a corpse, according to them, but there was something in the consciousness of the disciples so that, so that Christ was more real now in their consciousness than ever before. And that's the deep meaning of the resurrection, according to them. And this is what is being put down, not simply to biblical scholars in remote seminaries and universities. This is the message we're getting to the youngsters, kindergarten people on up. My own child, my oldest child, is now 23. And I live in one of the most extraordinary situations in New Jersey. I am 38 miles from the heart of New York City, Times Square. And I live in four and a half acres in the middle of 70 acres of woods. I have no neighbors. The first thing you see is a Catholic church, a Catholic school, and a Catholic convent. So my wife and I were overjoyed to have found this place. We, had four, we, we ended up having four children. At that time, we had only one. And we sent him to this school. He had to walk just through the woods, no danger from cars or anything else. But with it, by the time he was eight years old, he'd come back to us, you know, Mom, uh, Jonah and Noel is a myth. You know, Mom, we don't have to go to church anymore if we don't feel like it. Eight-year-old. And this is about 15 years ago. So that was the end of his tenure as a student in that school. We started our own school, and then it ended up my wife taught them at home everything because the schools were so stupid. They had not only this killing of the faith, they also had sex education, and they had absolutely immoral teaching, and they were not all that good on academics in any case. It was in any case a happy decision because my children are far better off than those who stuck it out in the school. Now, I have two points, two grand points tonight. I want to begin with a, an appreciation of the difficulties of biblical exegesis. 
You see, if it were a simple subject, if biblical exegesis were a simple subject, the errors could not proliferate so well. But I want to appreciate just why the errors have a chance to, to spread, because it's an extremely difficult subject. As a matter of fact, I would say this. In most seminaries in America, the worst professor is the professor of exegesis. And usually the next worst is the professor of moral theology. He doesn't know good or evil any longer, and he keeps talking about conscience and so on. But usually the best ones are the dogmatic theologians. They still believe in God. They believe in the Holy Trinity. Once in a while they believe in the church. But scripture, it's a miracle. It's the only miracle you'll ever find among scripture scholars. It would be a miracle if someone teaching scripture believes in scripture as the unerring word of God. And there's a reason for that. It's an extremely difficult subject. If I were running a seminary, I would fine comb the faculty to find orthodoxy, but to get my scripture man, I would insist not simply on orthodoxy, I would insist on so many gifts that only two or three would qualify. But unless I could get those people, I wouldn't have it. I'd much rather have people on their knees praying than listening to error. So I'm going to begin with the difficulties of scripture scholarship I then want to give a critical analysis of certain main errors. There are only two real main errors in Scripture which cover everything. Those of the liberal Protestants, the rationalists, which all began in Germany, spread to the English-speaking countries through France. First Germany, the German rationalists, then, then France, Renan and other people, and then through Father Tyrell, the Jesuit, and Irish Jesuit, into English-speaking countries. And, of course, then Teilhard de Chardin completed the circle. I mean, he simply uh, dressed it up with pseudo-scientific uh, statements. That's the first era. I'm going to talk about the liberal Protestant approach to Scripture. And then I'm going to talk about Father Raymond Brown, who's much more sophisticated and therefore much more difficult to refute, but he's doing enormous damage to the faith. He has totally destroyed faith many, many places. And bishops nevertheless invite him in, force the clergy to go to his workshop. And if anyone opposes Raymond Brown, they are told that they're obscurantists, that they're fundamentalists, and they have no sense of nuance. That's the favorite word of Raymond Brown. They don't know how to nuance biblical criticism. Now let's look at the first topic, the difficulties of biblical exegesis. We begin with this. The Bible, the books of the Bible, are supposed to be the word of God. Now, words are notoriously elusive. It's one thing if you show me the stone that, that someone carved, well, I can look at the stone. If you show me some sort of uh, fossil, I can look at the fossil. But a word is something that exists, in a sense, only in consciousness. It later on can be put on paper. But its true origin, words originate in personal consciousness, and alas for us, there are thousands of languages. There are perhaps 200 major languages, but when God speaks, God speaks through humans in the first place. The books of the Bible, we say, have God as their principal author, but their, their human author are human beings, Moses and Paul and Matthew and John and Isaiah and many other people. And these humans speak in different ancient languages. 
perhaps four or five crucial ancient languages so that the immortal, eternal God, using spiritual instruments called words, nevertheless embodies them, embodies them, that's a good word, through human voices and human pens in a human language. And that already makes it very difficult to begin with. This took place thousands of years ago. We already have difficulty. Shakespeare wrote, what, 400 years ago? And I think I know English pretty well. Well, I've read some Shakespearean plays 30 times. I wish I could read them all 30 times. I've seen them on stage, on television. There are perhaps 10 or 5% of Shakespeare's words that I don't understand. I simply don't. That uh, uh, Every so often when, when we put on a play, someone would say, what does that word mean? We don't know. We'll say it anyhow because it might be that it will remain in the consciousness of people. Now, that's Shakespeare writing in my own language, English, 400 years ago. How about Moses writing in Hebrew several thousand years ago? How about St. John writing in, in Greek 2,000 years ago? So it's already a difficult. Then, therefore, this is what we must say Whenever there is a, a, a search or a critical analysis of the Bible, one begins with simple questions like this. Who wrote a given book? You have the text. The various manuscripts have been collected in different codices all over the world. Some of them have been destroyed in the fire, but one has secondary sources uh, confirming their existence. So we want to know who wrote the text, when did he write it? To whom did he address it? What was his audience? What were the conditions of, of, of the, the reason? Did he write this in a polemical way? Did he write this in a pedagogical way? Was he a mere poet like the psalmist? The psalmist apparently would compose songs to be sung at royal festivals. Well, that's quite different from a historical work of the Bible. And then finally, what do certain words mean in the Bible? One gets a rough translation from any language into any other language, but whenever the matter is difficult, when it concerns these mysteries of God and of our religion, what exactly does it mean? This and this and this. So those are some of the difficulties. Now, as if that were... By the way, this is already something... When I have great admiration for... Protestant fundamentalists like Billy Graham. As a matter of fact, someone said, is it good or is it not good that Catholics in England are going to his lectures? It's probably good because they'll probably get more real doctrine from him than from the latest workshop they attended somewhere else. In one sense, it's not good because he is not a Catholic. He does not uh, hold Catholic beliefs. But if I had to choose between Billy Graham and the average workshop, the average demythologizing of the Bible, I take Graham. He believes in angels. He believes in the divinity of Christ, and so on. But here's the great weakness. The typical fundamentalist, he's usually a Protestant, but we have certain Catholics like this, uh, but actually they would have to be Protestant Catholics. They are serene that they don't need a church. All they need is the Bible. And then they take a beautifully bound Bible and slam it on the desk or open it up. This is the word of God. But may I, uh, may I tactfully note, where did you get this bound volume? At the bookstore? 
in the motel room, the Gideons put it there, that how did this, how did this collection of writings get to be put together between two covers? It's an enormous assumption that you think you have the word of God, that these Protestants, from this Bible, they'll prove anything. But how do they know this Bible is the word of God? How did, there are millions of pages of texts in the world, in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Aramaic and everything else. How did it happen that just these 1,100 pages of text got to be bound between two covers? That is an embarrassing question. We Catholics have a far more rational answer than they. But even in our answer, the problem is, as I said, foreign languages, different authors, uh, different problems of context and the like. Now, as if that were not enough, there are certain apparent conflicts in biblical passages. St. Augustine already wrote an article on this, or a little book, called The Harmony of the Gospels. I myself have read the Gospels dozens of times, and I never remark discrepancies, but if you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, the so-called synoptics, and then put John to one side, and you take any given event, sometimes it's perfect harmony. Sometimes there's, they don't match each other, but there's no contradiction. But every once in a while you'll find a little problem which embarrasses people. Because suppose I said every single word in the Bible is exactly as it happened. Okay. And then we go to the baptism in the Jordan, when John the Baptist pour immersed Jesus in the Jordan. According to one version, one hears, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father addresses himself to Jesus. In another version, by a different uh, evangelist, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father addresses himself not to Jesus, but to the crowd. Well, either or. So there's an apparent disharmony. Now, I don't say it's substantive, but there are little things like that that throw doubt upon absolute, literal, inerrant interpretation in the Bible. And then sometimes one doesn't know whether the, the 5,000 uh, people fed by the loaves and the fishes, how many miracles of loaves and fishes were there? Were there five loaves and two fishes or seven loaves and three fishes or whatever? That little things like that, they begin to say, well, well maybe uh, there isn't that absolute inerrancy in the Bible. That's how it starts. Something that trivial will start it. Then there are certain obscurities. St. Peter already remarked, this is interesting, Peter is the fisherman, he didn't go to Harvard or Oxford. St. Paul did. St. Paul is the learned Pharisee. So St. Paul wrote the most glorious material going, but St. Peter said our brother Paul sometimes is very obscure and one wishes one could understand him better. This sounds like our Pope reading a theologian. That, uh, that he, he doesn't understand everything St. Paul said. And the wonderful Cardinal Newman, one sermon of which, of Newman, is worth all the modern theology I've ever read. And if you people want to grow up in the faith, throw away the workshops and read Newman, above all the sermons. But Newman himself said in one sermon, he said, when we read St. Paul and we see an especially obscure, mysterious passage, St. Paul speaks of his rapture. Sometimes he speaks of the relationship between Christ and God. And it's so mysterious. 
Newman says, how we wish we could summon the apostle and question him. And some of the greatest saints have taken biblical passages and have prayerfully, on their knees, tried to understand the meaning of them. So I don't say this, is a, this proves the Bible is wrong, but it's mysterious. It's difficult. And now, notice what I've said. I've shown you all these difficulties already. The language, uh, the, the collection of works, the translations, the meanings, and so on. But now comes two new difficulties which are relatively recent to be understood. There are secular disciplines intimately involved in biblical criticism. One secular discipline is linguistics, is language itself, that if I want to try to understand the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament written by Jews who spoke Greek, so-called the so-called Septuagint, and it was written before Christ, and we in the Catholic Church claim it has canonical authority, now I have to know what Greek is. And in order to know, I mean, I have to know Greek thoroughly. It's not simply I can say a few words in Greek. So I have to go to all these universities, and there are certain professors who have done their work on Homer and who tell me about this, this idiom. Well, that's a secular discipline, philology, grammar, and so on. But that can be lived with. We can live with the fact that we need secular disciplines of grammar and philology when we do our exegesis. But here's a new thing. We Catholics and we Christians and even the Jews, we who believe the Bible as the word of God, we claim that the Bible records historical facts. We don't say it's a legend about how uh, some mysterious uh, Jupiter came on earth and out of his ear some goddess was made. No, we claim that these events depicted in the Old Testament about the Exodus, about Abraham, these are literally so that there are, there are places on earth where Abraham actually walked. There's a place on earth where Adam and Eve actually walked. We claim that there's a place where Jesus Christ was born, a real place, historical. We claim that there really was an emperor, Pontius Pilate. There was a census that during the uh, time of Tiberius Caesar, the reason why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem was that they had to conform to a census. Right? Now, a census should be in a government record. This is not revealed doctrine. There should be civil records of the Roman Empire available in a historically accessible way, which would tell us about, about the census of, of, of uh, Tiberius Caesar. 